Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A-Time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome back Mike Boyle to the Philosophy Podcast. Mike is one of the foremost strength and conditioning coaches in the world, and uh, I love talking and listening and learning from him. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love talking to you, too. We, we talk too much. We should record all our conversations, but we just do these ones. Yeah, I agree. Um, we've had a fun time doing some webinars, and um, I'm really looking forward to um, sharing this in a podcast because right now there are so many people out there that are committed to trying to be as good as they can be at their sports. And they've got kids and players and there's coaches and parents and players. They all want to get as good as they can possibly be, take their game to the next level. And um, honestly, there's, there's no better way than through strength and conditioning. I would absolutely positively agree with you, but I think that's because I'm a strength and conditioning coach. So it's easy for me to say. Yeah. Well, regardless, it's incredibly important. Everybody knows it. Um, I want to start off with this concept you talk about all the time, and we both kind of talk about, which is skin in the game. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about this when we, when we did our webinar. I mean, both of us are in the same boat in terms of you've got three kids that play. I've got from the lacrosse end, I've got one that plays and one that's playing college ice hockey. But I've been doing the things that I espouse, what I tell people to do, what we've talked about is exactly what I did with my own kids. And so I think that makes a really big difference because at least I've found for me, and it, it may be terrible to say, but it's, it's a much bigger deal when it's your kid. I mean, it really yeah. is. I mean, that's, it's, and I love everybody else's kid, and I think I've done a good job training everybody else's kids, but it really is different when it's yours. Right. So for me, what I've been trying to develop this whole time, I always talk about kind of the Holy grail. Like I've been searching for the Holy grail, the perfect program. Like what's, what's the best possible way 
to do this. And that search, I mean, has just gotten magnified since I've had my own kids and my own kids in sports. Well, and we have skin in the game and I end up working with your son on lacrosse topics and you work with my daughter on strength and conditioning topics. And which is kind of cool because of the skin in the game that we have and we're both interested in, in, in everything. And so it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it really has. It's been great. I mean, I like watching Lucy develop. I tell people all the time, I really should have, you know, I should have saved the early videos because yeah. it's crazy to look at her now. Like she sends me videos and I'm like, wow, this kid's like, she looks, she looks like a college athlete and she's, is she going into her senior year? Yeah. Senior year right now, 2021. Senior year. So she, but she looks, you know, like a kid I said to her, she'll, when she goes to college, she will be the physical equivalent of a junior in terms of where she is from a strength and conditioning standpoint, because of the work that she's done over the past, whatever. I don't even know how long it's been, but it's probably, it's probably getting up on a year. It's a year. Yeah. She was, she was lifting for a year before that, but when she started working with you, it just started to completely, the trajectory was just much steeper and you know, she's, she's pretty regular with it. Right. Which I think is the important part. Well, that's, I, I always talk about that. And we talked about, uh, you know, I'll probably jump around here on you, but we talked about that slight edge idea, you know, and the one thing about strength and conditioning is showing up. It really matters. You have to show up. Slight Edge is one of my favorite books. And, and uh, Jeff Olson, the author, talks about, you know, Slight Edge principle one is show up. Yeah. Slight Edge principle two is show up consistently. And there's almost some redundancy there because if you're showing up, you know, you should keep showing up. But what happens a lot in everything, and it, it's lacrosse practice. It's saying, oh, I'm going to go shoot, you know, balls, or I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to do that. People show up a couple times, and then they kind of lose interest. And Strength and conditioning, the great thing about strength and conditioning is I always talk about it's not like getting better at a sport because I don't think you get better at a sport just by continuing to do it. it. There's a little more nuance to it and there's maybe more skill that's involved. But strength and conditioning, if you're just consistently going in and doing what you're supposed to be doing, you will consistently get better, particularly over the first couple of years. I, I call it free strength. You know, the first couple of years of lifting – you just get better and better and better. And it's not, it's not super complicated. It's just a matter of going in and, you know, people are always stressing about periodization and what kind of program. I'm like, don't worry about it. If you get your kids, particularly like I started my kids when they were about 11 years old, both of them. And it was just like, just come in the weight room with me two days a week, learn how to do the stuff, go through the process and, and they get better. I mean, they've gotten, you know, both of my kids are pretty good lifters at this stage of their life. And they're also both pretty good players. Yeah. So twice a week, that's a 50 lifts yeah. a year. Twice a week. And 100 you know, a year. 100 a year. 100 a year. And maybe, you know, maybe you go to three in three days in the summer or four days in the summer if you really want to. But it probably comes out to, you know, 100 to 150 workouts a year. But as we've talked about, over the course of four years, that's somewhere between, you know, 400 and 600 lifts that you've gotten in. And when you start looking at, again, gaining that competitive advantage, it's massive. I, and I, I like I said, I don't like to brag about my kids, but I actually do. So that's a lie. So <laughs> I, I do like to brag about my kids, but the change in my son in a two year period has been dramatic. Yes. And the dramatic change is probably not significant related significantly related to his lacrosse skill getting better it's his physical ability primarily his ability to run and the fact that he can run faster 
makes a massive difference in his game just as a midfielder, just getting up and down the field, getting into position, getting to where he's got to go, getting to balls, getting someplace on the ride. Like there's all the things that you, you know, everything, I always say, everything gets better with speed. We've talked about, you know, you and I, a lot about the nuance of deception and a lot of this stuff, but the, the harsh reality, I would say being, being too fast is like being too rich or too good looking. It, you really can't be, you know, like there's not a time when you think, Oh shit, I wish that kid was slower. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. You might wish for that kid to slow down. You might yeah. want to try to teach him how to use their speed. Right. But you're never going to look and think, damn, I just wish that kid was a bit slower. It, I mean, especially like I said, in a game like lacrosse where at times, you know, you can just possess the ball and run with it. It makes a massive difference. Well, also because, you know, if, if you're, if you change your max speed from 18 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, now you're, you're 85% is faster too. Exactly. We'll see you've, you've learned over our conversations, but you're hundred percent right. And that's the one thing that people, when they argue about this idea, it's exactly that. So when you look at kids, like I said, my son is probably gone from, and if we just use 20 miles an hour, 20, he's, he's not quite at 20 miles an hour. 20 miles an hour is about a, like a, you know, a one Oh 10 flying 10. He's yeah. at about a one, one. But if we just use 20 miles an hour, if we say he was at 16 miles an hour and he's gotten to 20, which is about where he is, as you said, when you start saying, for him to run at 80%, he now runs at the speed that he used to sprint at. Right. And so now, you know, he can go out and go at that 80% speed for minutes at a time, which you can't do at the 20 mile an hour mark. So you're right. It's that speed and max speed is kind of that rising tide that raises all boats because you just, as you get faster, it's easier for you to be faster than someone else longer. You know, someone else can do all the long distance running they want, all the conditioning running they want. But if they can only run 16 miles an hour, they're in trouble because yep. they won't be able to run that forever. Well, and just you're more under control. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is it's like, you know, if you can shoot the ball 110, you know, and then you want to shoot it at 80%, you know, you're still shooting at 90 or whatever. It, it makes a really big difference. You'll be more accurate. You'll have more time. You know, it just yep. gives you more flexibility. Yeah, it does. It, it is. It is. Um, and I think the sprinting part, and we've talked about this, the, the timed 10 idea, you know, is as close to the Holy Grail or the secret or whatever as I've ever gotten. You know, when you really look at something and if someone said to me, you know, what's the one thing? We've talked about this, you know, ad nauseum, you and I together. You know, the idea of saying to somebody, you know, buy, buy a timer because that timer is going to be more valuable to you than like all the weights in the world and all the bands and all the balls and all the other shit you can buy. Because the other thing that you find is when you make it some sort of contest, like beat the clock, everything changes. And I was, I was so shocked when I first started doing this and embarrassingly shocked. And I've talked about this in numerous times in other sort of strength and conditioning podcasts, but I always used to feel like we, we always ran sprints. There's never been a time since I've been a strength and conditioning coach when we didn't run sprints, but we didn't run full speed sprints and people selected self-selected their own speeds because we weren't timing. And suddenly when the timer came out, everything changed. And in all honesty, I should have, I should have picked up on it a long time ago, but I will tell you a guy named Tony Haller, who's um, he's found this feed the cats movement or founded this thing. And he's a 
high school track coach. He's a guy like me, 60-year-old, bald with glasses. If you saw the pictures of us together, you'd be like, oh, these guys are brothers. But he, he really got me thinking about this idea, and then I tried it. And I was absolutely shocked at the effect. And then we've shown the, the videos on the webinar, but the other thing I was shocked about is the self-organizational ability of sprinting. Sprinting creates better sprinting. When you say to a kid, try to run as fast as you can, sometimes the kids will try goofy things and think, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna overstride or I'm gonna do something. And then they get a worse time. So they get immediate feedback that, okay, that thing that I just tried didn't work. And we say, I always tell people, when people are like, well, what do you tell them? I tell them, push the ground as hard as they can. Because that's really when you look at speed development and physics, the basic idea is how hard can I push back that way? And the harder I push back that way, the harder I go forward the other way. That's, that's the reality of physics. You know, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. It's not super complicated, but the kids start to figure it out. And I videoed, I had a slow motion video, and I think we showed it in the webinar, but all the kids' lower bodies looked really, really similar. And if you were analyzing mechanics, someone who was analyzing mechanics would be like, hey, all those 14-year-old boys actually look pretty good in terms of lower body mechanics. And they do. They all look pretty good because they were all been timed a whole bunch of times and they're all figuring out what works and what doesn't work, which is um, it's the idea of self-organization that your body sort of, that the body teaches itself to some degree is an amazing concept that it doesn't work. Like in the weight room, kids won't always figure the best way out, but in sprinting, they do. Hmm. Interesting. Um, You've, you've said before, if you're not timing your sprints, it's not speed training. Yet, there's so much speed training going on out there. And, you know, is there not benefit to learning how to do, you know, all of the high knee, A skips, you know, knee up, heel up, step over the knee, all that stuff? Um, um, I, you know, I would ask at this point in time, I'd say no. Probably, I, there is benefit, yes. It's a really good warm up for the time sprints that you're going to do. But if you're doing that stuff, thinking that you can teach somebody how to run better, it's very much what we talked about the other day. It's like doing, you know, drills and dodging against cones. Yeah. You put a real guy in there, a real girl in there, and suddenly it doesn't go as well anymore. And, you know, somebody who's rehearsed all the movements suddenly gets screwed up because, oh, wait a second, that, that defender's good. And they just poke check the ball on my stick. Wait a second. You know, let me go back and start over so I can do those three steps again. It's like, no, it doesn't, you don't get, they don't get to give you the ball back. They take it and they go the other way. And so it's, it's the same kind of idea. It just, it's, um, it is its own teacher. You say the difference between Lucy's PR and an average time is the difference between hundred percent and 98%. What does that mean? Well, basically, because one of those, and I did this for somebody the other day, because someone said, oh, you should have your your athletes just sprint at 98%. And I said, no, that doesn't make any sense. Because if you really do the math, like let's just say Lucy, I'll say, I'll, I'll say Lucy's a 1-5 so I can keep the numbers simple for this Springfield College graduate. But if, um, if she's a 1-5 and I say, okay, that means that 10% is 0.15. Well, that means 5% is 0.07. That means, you know, if she runs, you know, I could say, hey, Lucy, I want you to run 1.57 on this one versus 1.5 and she's supposed to be able to really know the difference in that that's that doesn't really work you know you've got to be able like it's sometimes she'll run 98 percent 
just because it's not a good day. Sometimes you write around 97% because it's not a good day. And the real 100 or the new 100 is, is a little more rare, particularly as the kid gets more trained. But it's the biggest difference is knowing are you getting 80 or 100? You, because you don't know. And that's the thing that we started talking about. When, you, when someone says to me, I want to get faster, I go through this, well, how fast are you? And they might say, oh, I'm fast. I'm slow. I'm kind of fast. I'm like, no, how fast are you? Like, what is, you know, for me, I want to know what your fly 10 time is. You know, what's your flying 10? What was the length of the fly? Was it a 10-yard fly in? Was it a 20-yard fly in? You know, and what was your time? And then I'll tell you how fast you really are. Because now the one thing about this too is that we're getting more and more data. So I, someone can say to me now, okay, what's fast for a middle school girl? And I could say, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, if, if you can run a fly 10 under one, three as a middle school girl, you're really fast. You know, what's fast for, you know, an elite college female, Michael, if you can run under one, two, you're really fast. Like we know what those numbers are now, but if you don't know your numbers, right. How do you know, it's, it's the, the Peter Drucker thing, right? What gets measured is managed. There's no way for you to, to have any analysis of how fast you are until you've done speed testing. And I used to do this with my B hockey guys on ice. And um, we had a conversation one time. I, I had the coaches just kind of for fun. I said, okay, you guys rank the guys. Tell me, I'll give you the list. You guys rank them one to 25 speed. And we'll see how close you are. And we had this one, Nick Benino, who plays – uh, he's had a long NHL career. He's in Nashville now. And I remember them, you know, they, they rated Nick Benino really low because he wasn't a, not a good skater. Now, we do the speed testing, and he's actually in the upper half. And I went back and I said, hey, just so you know, Benino's fast. He's in the upper half of our team. And they were like, yeah, but he's not a good skater. And I'm like, I don't care. We didn't, you didn't ask me what his skating looked like. What you want to analyze is how fast does he go from point A to point B? When we go from point A to point B, he's in the upper half of our team. And, you know, it ended up where, you know, the knock on him was always, he's not a good skater. He's not a good skater. And it came down to, he doesn't skate pretty like some guys. And that goes back to like you said, the A skip, the B skip, you know, high knees, all that stuff. You might look at some people and think, oh, they look so good running. And, you know, that goes back, I keep book references, but Moneyball, right? You go back to Moneyball, in the beginning yeah. of Moneyball, Billy Beans, you know, yelling at his scouts. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't want guys that look like baseball players. I want guys that can play baseball. You know, he said, I don't want guys that look good in jeans. You know, because guys can, oh, this guy looks like a player. You know, and you know, I mean, you're a yeah. college coach, right? You know, you realize sometimes you fall in love with that kid. You look at that kid and think, man, he looks like a player. And then you kind of look at, a, at productivity and you think, Gee, you know, but he, you know, he's not really scoring. He's not really doing, you know, but, but God, does he look good running with a stick around, you know, in his hands? He looks, he just looks good. And looking good is, I mean, look, it's like looking fast isn't fast. Yeah. Fast is time. A yeah. to B. That's right. What, what is it about maxing out? And, you know, you talk about like, you know, when we do this, it's, it's six to eight sprints in a week. That's, it's really all it is, this, this model that you use. So first of all, what's so important about maxing out and, and why only six or seven? Uh, one is from a safety standpoint, because one thing we don't know, we don't know how much sprinting is too much. We, we do know there is too much. When we think of, when we see the you know, hamstring pulls and the injuries that people get, we know you can do too much. We don't know exactly what that is. So what we aim for is what we would look at is what's the minimum effective dose. 
what's the least amount we can do to get the speed improvement that we're looking for? And we're finding that that is falling, like you said, somewhere in the six to eight reps of a, a time 10. But when uh, you, know, you alluded to the, you know, the maxing out, it, imagine, and this is what I try to get people to think about, is imagine if you had a drill in the weight room where you could go in six to eight times a week and do a one RM and, and you just kept getting stronger and it just kept working. You'd, you'd really fall in love with that lift. Well, I will guarantee you that there's not a lift that's like that, but there is in sprinting. So in sprinting suddenly in the lift that we're doing, the sprint itself is much faster in terms of meters per second than anything that you can do in the weight room. So what you really have is like this super effective plyometric exercise, which is what running is, that you can do at 100% or 97 or 96%, six to eight times a week. I mean, that's massive. What is the neurological effect from maxing out like that in sprinting? Oh, I mean, it, it's the most, it's probably the most neurologically intensive thing that you can do in terms of, because it really is, it's, you know, a max time sprint is hundred percent effort done somewhere about, you know, we would say like in the, you know, eight or nine per second range. If you think about the weight room, something fast in the weight room, like a power clean is about 1.5 meters a second. Meters per second. Yeah. So sprinting is eight to nine meters a second for even average, you know, like the kind of sprinters, you know, average team sport athletes, just you, if you think about it, here's something that's literally four to five times more powerful than the fastest thing that you can do in the weight room. So, and I think this is one of the, the, the things that I'm trying to get across to people all the time is that we need to look at sprinting. We, I think in the past we saw sprinting as a test. I'm going to test whatever. I'm going to test the 40. I'm going to test the 60. I'm going to test the 10, whatever we tested. And we tested it to see if the things that we were doing were getting better. Now I look at it entirely differently and say, we need to look at this. This is a tool. This is a really powerful tool that we're using for training. It's not, we're not testing the results of other things. We're using it to train. So many times people are trying to, achieve speed in the weight room. But really, there's one thing you're going to do to get faster. It would be sprints and time your sprints. Is that true? If you just did one thing? Absolutely. Like people think in, in strength coaches, and this is part of the problem with being a strength coach, is you want to believe that squats and power cleans and all the things that you like are making people faster. And, and I don't know if I showed the slide in the webinar, but it, I always go back to like Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis thing, you know, um, ben Johnson was unfortunately banned for life for steroids, but also was sort of the, the darling of the strength coaches because he was the weightlifter. He was the guy that could bench 365 and squat 600. And everybody in the strength world wanted to attribute, well, the reason Ben Johnson's fast is because he's good in the weight room. Carl Lewis was harder to explain, you know, because Carl Lewis was lankier and was not noted for his weight room feats. And one of the things I realized as I studied those guys was that, well, they do have one thing in common. They both run a lot of sprints and you start looking and thinking, wait a second, maybe the weight room stuff doesn't have much to do with the speed part because 
One of them's really doing it at a very high level. One of them's not doing it at a very high level. They're both running at about the same rate of speed. And, and you know, would Ben Johnson have been a better football player than Carl Lewis? Yeah, I think so. Because Ben Johnson, you know, had the football build built from the weight room. But the reality is that's not what you're looking for, a, particularly in most sports. You know, most the, we have a, like a bad case of American football-itis in, um, in strength and conditioning where we're constantly copying everything from American football. And there are certain things that have been really made strength and conditioning better that came out of American football. And then there's some things that aren't. You know, you look at even in lacrosse, uh, you don't need uh, that – you know, you don't need linemen. <laughs> you don't need, you know, there's certain people that you kind of don't need in lacrosse. You need, there's a kind of a, a body type and it would, might go back to, I like the Goldilocks analogy. You know, there's one that's just right. Like you might look at one guy and say, this is, you know, I don't want a really super skinny kid. You know, I don't want a guy that's so muscular that, that I feel like he doesn't move well. But there's a guy that's right in the middle that, you know, that again, I know that guy when I see him. I know that body type when I see him. And, you know, but we get stuck in the American football thing in the, in the weight room. We literally, as strength coaches, get stuck in the weight room and we constantly want to lift more and push people's maxes up, you know, and, and that stuff isn't necessarily correlating to the things that we want to see on the field. Because ultimately, your job as a strength and conditioning coach, one, I always say, your job is injury reduction and then your job is performance enhancement. So if you've got healthy people who are getting better at their game, then you're really doing their job. You know, you like you don't look at your strength coach and think, and this is what football coaches used to do. I want, you know, I want 25 guys to bench over 400 pounds. That would be a big mandate for you know a college division one college football strength coach, as if having that number would correlate to wins and losses. And when the reality is, you know, I'd look at it and think, I want 25 guys that are really, really good football players, NFL prospects. You know, guys that are guys that are going to crank out NFL level times, you know, in the 40 at their position, that'd be really what got you to the, yeah. the win column, not the number of guys who could bench press 400 pounds. It's making better athletes and, and better athletes usually means speed. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really does. If you look, my friend, Tony, the, you know, Tony Hall, the feed the cats guy. One of the things he always does is he highlights the linemen in the NFL draft. And he talks about the fact that almost all of the guys that get drafted in the first round are the fastest guys. It is very, very rare that a guy who goes in the first round of the NFL draft at his position is not one of the fastest people at his position. Really, extremely, extremely, extremely rare. Now, why why tens as opposed to forties or fifties? Uh, because the the data, some of the injury data shows that there is a pretty drastic increase in injury when you go above twenty, and so. For us, when we saw that data initially, that's kind of what made us pick 10. And then Tony Haller had just picked flying 10 as kind of his metric when he started this thought process. And he wrote an article called Record, Rank, and Publish. He, but he gets his fly 10 in the 30 to 40 segment of a 40-yard dash. So they actually time 40s twice a week. But what they time is they hand time the 40, and they use their electronic timer to, to grab the, the 30 to 40 segment. And that's where they get their fly 10 time from. I, I just gravitated that. The other thing too is in this, um, I'm getting a little all, all over the place here, but in a sports performance setting, a lot of times you don't have enough distance. So tens make sense because, you know, to do a, a fly 10 with a, a 10 yard run up, you need 20 yards, right? You need 60 feet and enough room to decelerate. 
So you probably need 90 feet. You might need 30 yards. Most people don't have 30 yards in an indoor facility. If you're not like division one college is different, but in just about every place else, you know, you, you might be lucky if you can get a 10 yard, you know, a fly 10 with a five yard run up and enough room to run into the wall at the other end. So I think it, the 10 meets a lot of needs, Yeah. but it also gives, it just gives you something central to compare to. And this it's now there's a lot of kind of internet Twitter chatter about people's, um, fly 10 times. Cause I always say whenever they post their times, I'm like, okay, you got to post a fly in because you know, if I look at that time and think, you know, did you, some people, I just let them go as far as they want. Like some people will give them a 50 yard, you know, just let them back up as far away from the timer as they want. That's really different. We found that. So if we do a five yard fly in basically mean a five yard run up to a 10, and then we move to a 10 yard run up, the time drops by 0.1. Wow. Yeah. And you know, and if we give them, a 15 yard run up, it drops by 0.15. Then if we give them a 20 yard run up, some guys don't get faster. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty interesting, you know, to see how, how it works. You know, it's the same thing when we go from standing start to five yard fly, it drops 0.1. So if I run a one five standing, I'll run a one four five fly and I'll run a one three 10 fly and I'll run a one two five 15 fly. It would be almost that consistent right across the board. So, you know, obviously the length of acceleration that you give them going into that fly really matters. So all these things, you know, this keeps going back to the Drucker thing, right? What gets measured gets managed. So what we do is we go, you know, five for three weeks, 10 for three weeks. That's kind of what I had Lucy doing. Yep. And, you know, so that we're getting, we're getting longer distances, but basically similar metrics is kind of the key to the whole thing. It is remarkable to realize that the kids can do this on their own. Like, I don't have anything to do with it. I don't go out there and measure her or help her set it up or even find out when she's doing it. She goes over to the turf, sets it up, you know, um, on the football field using those lines, warms up, runs it, and she'll come back and be like, hey, I got a PR today. <laughs> and I'll be like, awesome. Yeah, that's and the beauty of it. Once you master the timer, once you figure out how to use the timer, yeah. it is that easy. The other thing that's beautiful about it is the kids love it. Our kids... They do. Yeah, if I if I let them do as many reps as they want, I think some of them would stay out there for an hour trying to, you know, trying to get a PR. But again, it's the same thing. Now they realize too, sometimes guys will be like, nope, you know, they'll do like uh, my group, we do 5, 10, 15, 20 now because they've been doing it for a long time. So we do a five yard fly, 10 yard fly, 15 yep. yard fly, 20 yard fly. And they'll run 120. And if they get a PR, they'll be like, yeah, I, I'm not doing another one. Cause they know it won't be faster. Like they, they start to self-regulate a little bit, but in the yeah. beginning they would just keep trying. Then we'd be like, no, you're going to get hurt. Like four is the limit and we're done. And there's a, you know, it's funny. We don't enforce it, but Charlie Francis, who was Johnson's coach, who's probably the, you know, the, the Dean of sprint coaches, the late Charlie Francis, sadly, but um, used to have a rule that if you PR, you were done, no matter what. Like if you ran a time and it was personal best, take it in. See you later. And it's actually a pretty good rule because you think, okay, I just established a new max. What am I, you know, what's going to be better than that? Am I going to run, you know, another one that's better? I'm probably going to run another one or two that are slightly slower. So it, uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of nuance. The other thing we should say this, if people are listening, not races, these are always done one at a time, one kid at a time, no, what not racing. And some, again, the coach in somebody thinks no way, you know, they're going to go faster if they compete. They're not going to go faster if they, if they compete and they're probably going to get hurt 
because now they're no longer self-regulating. They're no longer self-organizing. You've inserted what in research they call the confounding variable, the other person over there to their right or to their left. And they, whether it's them looking or them overstriding or them reaching, trying to, to beat somebody, suddenly somebody gets hurt because you inserted that other person. So we like to make this an internally competitive activity. You know your best time. You're trying to beat your best time. I'm not trying to beat Jamie. Jamie's not trying to beat Mike. Jamie's trying to beat Jamie. Mike's trying to beat Mike. That's the way this thing works because I'm not, I'm looking at you getting better. I'm not looking at you getting better than me because you know, your skill level may be way higher than mine. Right. And it doesn't, but you might be slower than me. And so, you know, what we try to do, and it's really funny because coaches love the, they get a little caught on that. Like, Oh, we want to encourage competition. And I'm like, no, you really don't. Not, not in this particular situation. You don't want to encourage competition. You want to encourage somebody to try to get better. And that's not necessarily competition. What about agility? You spent a lot of time working on, um, you know, acceleration, deceleration, cutting. Uh, you, I said, you're the, you're the master of good questions. We do not. It's very, very interesting because, and this has become a point of disagreement from some people with me, but, and I think part of that, again, is the, like I said, the American football-itis kind of thing. American football can't practice for a large percentage of the year. It's very, very difficult. I always say it's difficult to organize a football game, you know, to try to get 21 of your closest friends who all play the right positions and can show up and, you know, you can throw a football game together. It doesn't happen. Um, you know, and then there's pads and referees. There's a lot of things that have to happen for a football game to happen. But as a result, football has to do a lot of stuff in the offseason. And one of the, you know, agility drills and bag drills and all kinds of stupid shit, I think, that really is just sort of time fillers and time wasters. We don't do any of that because our kids, if you look at, say, you look at Lucy and you ask yourself in a typical week, how many days does she practice? How many days does she play? More than likely, the average kid, it's probably going to be at least four total, you know, two practices and two games. And it may be like my son and his friends, it's significantly more than that because right now they're playing two sports. I don't feel like they need, you know, they're doing plenty, you know, of cutting plenty of the, you know, the, as we talked about, you know, the, the working on deception and beating somebody for me to go back and say, I'm going to use part of my 120 minutes a week to um, redundantly fill an already full bucket is um, a waste of time. What about deceleration? Deceleration? Did you say? Yeah. Yeah. They get it. Run a sprint. <laughs> Right? You got to slow down. And it's really funny. I said that the other day to somebody. If you watch sprinting, you're getting that component. You're getting deceleration. You know, people say, oh, do you work on deceleration? I'm like, yeah, every day. Because we don't run into the wall full speed. We slow down. And most of the kids, sometimes I tell them to, to not slow down so hard. Because for whatever reason, some of them really like to almost see, like, can I slow down in four steps? Which really is great from an injury prevention standpoint, but I think sometimes I hear the sounds and think it's beating up their shins and probably gonna make their knees sore. But that's what I mean with sprinting. Like you get so much from so little. If you look and said, you know, we're talking about like six seconds of work. Yeah. In a, you know, in a four, four sprints a minute, you know, 1.5 seconds per sprint, six seconds of work. But the quality of that six seconds is extremely, extremely high. 
So let's talk a little bit about the weight room because obviously um, you believe in that. Um, if you had to choose between sprinting and weight room, you'd choose sprinting. Luckily, you don't have to choose. Um, you always say you think your sport is different, but it really isn't. Right. And, that's, and we talk about that all the time because everybody wants a specific program. It's amazing the number of parents who show up and say, well, my son's a lacrosse player or my son plays baseball or my son plays basketball or whatever. And it's kind of like, well, the weight room is the weight room. And it's, it's really the same with sprinting. But if someone said to me, what are you going to do in the weight room? I mean, we design programs and we're doing this with our train aerobic programs. And I, I shouldn't probably say this, but if someone looked at our programs across the range of sports, they would realize that what is different about most of the programs are the titles of the programs. The programs themselves are not drastically different because it's not like there really is a soccer program or a basketball program or a football program. There's just a program. There's things that help you get stronger. There's things that help you get faster. And everybody needs to do relatively the same things. The, one, the only area where there's really a discernible difference is when we talk, and this has nothing to do with lacrosse, but we talk about overhead athletes, tennis players, swimmers, volleyball players, um, baseball players you have to have some considerations for their shoulder health that you wouldn't in other sports. But other than that, I mean, I train guys that play in the premier league. I've trained the, you know, the Olympic gold medalist in judo. I've trained Olympic gold medalists in women's soccer. I've trained Olympic gold medalists in ice hockey. I've trained NFL guys. I've worked for a major league baseball team and won a world championship. And there really isn't much that we do differently across that whole entire spectrum. Someone comes, if you came to Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning tomorrow and you watched everybody work out and I said, okay, tell me what sport they play. If you watched Kayla Trainer work out with Megan Keller, so Kayla Trainers are, you know, everybody on this podcast knows who Kayla Trainer is. Megan Keller is probably the top five female defenseman in ice hockey in the world. If you watch them work out together and I said, to you, okay, what do they do? You'd look at Keller and you'd be like, women's basketball, definitely because she's 5'11 and kind of lanky. And you'd probably look at Kayla and be like, damn, I don't know what she does. Because she's like 5'11 and she's super athletic looking, but, but I don't know if women's lacrosse would be my first guess. But the point is, by watching them work out, you would never have any idea what their sport was because they'd be doing the exact same thing. The two of them, they worked out the other day together and I would say there was zero difference. The, oh, not zero difference. There's a little bit of difference Kayla's conditioning varies slightly from Megan's conditioning. But other than that, in the weight room itself, zero. Yeah, and in the weight room, what is it? Is it it's pulls, it's pushes, it's squats. Knee dominant, yep. Knee dominant, hip dominant, push, pull, core. I mean, it's just, it's in, you know, it's, it's complicated and super simple all sort of at the same time. Because you look at it and think uh, it's, it's not, a, you know, a difficult process. Yeah. We're going to push something. I, one of my friend's wives literally said, her name was Yvonne Ward. And she said, just push something, pull something, do something for your legs and you're fine. Right. And I was like, yeah, basically push something, pull something, do something for your legs and you're fine. Yep. You hit the nail right. You're, we're good. I mean, you're like a super strength coach and I'm gonna, I quote her all the time. And I think, she, I don't even know if she's actually, she might be a personal trainer, but I'm not even hundred percent sure she's in the field. Her husband is. Her husband's like director of sports science for the Seahawks. But she's still one of these people that I quote all the time and talk about, you know, push, pull, do something for your legs. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the things that 
you have gotten away from maybe 10 or 20 years ago was back squats. Why? <laughs> what we found with back squats was that what we would call the risk benefit ratio was just too high. So if I looked at the exercise and said, what do I think the benefit of that exercise is? And what do I think the risk of that exercise is? We were finding that about 20% of our athletes were reporting back pain from back squats. So I said, 20% is too high. You know, particularly if you look at like 100 football players and say, wow, you know, I got 20 guys getting treatment right now for low back pain. That's a lot. And so we've started to move away from back squatting. That led us towards more initially to front squatting and then eventually just to all these different unilateral variations. If you watched my Instagram yesterday, you know, we're doing, now we're really loading just one leg squats and, uh, you know, what we would call a one leg deadlift or a skater squat. We're really loading the unilateral stuff because we found that the unilateral loading actually works better and results in higher loads. This is what's cool. There's this guy, you know, you always talk about the people. I've found this guy, Alex Natera, who's a, uh, Australian rules football strength and conditioning coach. And he started doing uh, force plate data and looking at single leg squatting versus double leg squatting. And he came to the conclusion based on not, you know, he didn't make it up. He had people on force plates doing this. And he said, if you can, um, if you can single leg squat half your body weight, it's equivalent to you back squatting twice your body. So if we took a 200 pound guy, and said, you know, if he can do a single leg squat with 100 pounds of external load, that would be equivalent to him putting 400 pounds on his back in a back squat. Wow. Yeah, and, and if you look at that and think, would I rather have my athlete negotiating 100 pounds or 400? The answer is, I mean, I think to anybody with any common sense, the answer is pretty simple. You'd look at it and think, well, obviously, I'd much rather have the guy using uh, 100 versus 400. Because the risk, you know, and especially when you get into really strong people, you know, the risk as the load increases goes up. I mean, you know, if you get a kid now who's, you know, and this is what happens again, the, the American football thing. And I don't trust me. My father was a football player. I was a football player. I, you know, my first transition job was football. I love football. But it's the American football thing again. And it's like the more weight you squat, the better you are in the weight room. And so you've got guys, you know, with 600, 700, 800 pounds. And you start thinking like, spines weren't made to do that and so we you know we realized over time that we didn't think it was a good idea then we realized over time that we were getting better benefits without it and then you get into the whole kind of functional anatomy the way the body works the way you run the way you jump it's all unilateral anyway it's all one leg right so why are we training so much on two and we train on two so much because we've always trained on two and everybody tells us we're supposed to train on two. You know, it's kind of, again, goes back to the stuff that you talk about, you know, dodging deception, you know, why not just go out and, you know, dodge on a cone because that's the way everybody did it. Right. Everybody's there. Just go out, you know, run around. It's, it's the progress of um, intellectually examining the process. You start looking at the process right. and thinking, is there a better way to do this? Let's talk about cleans. You do hang cleans and not power cleans. Um, can you talk about why and also the, the benefit and value of cleans? Same thing in terms of risk benefit ratio. Because cleaning from the floor, so a power clean done off the floor, is really good for someone who's of a certain height. The one thing that we talk about is that, you know, the disc, 
the weight itself, I think they're 18 inches, if I'm not mistaken. But whatever the, the diameter of the disc is, it's, um, it's a constant, which means if I'm six foot seven, I have to try to get into this position where the bar is, say, nine inches off the floor. If I'm five foot seven, I also have to get into a position where the bar is nine inches off the floor. It's obviously easier for the person who's five foot seven than the person who's six foot seven. So we started to realize if we just get everybody to start at their knees from the hang position, everybody equals out. Everybody, everybody's got knees and everybody's got kneecaps. And so now we've eliminated a lot of the back stress of trying to get into that low position. So that's what sort of led us to the hang clean. And I still like, I love cleans. I love Olympic lifts. I, I would, um, again, when you talk about skin in the game, um, up until my daughter had shoulder surgery a couple of years ago, but up until that point, you know, she was cleaning and really good at the clean. I mean, she could clean 135 for five when she was in high school. And, you know, my son now is at the point where he's probably cleaning at 15 years old. He's probably got a one RM getting close to 180 pounds uh, at 15 years old. And it's, I think there's nothing better for power, explosiveness, coordination. There's just a lot of good things, but some people would argue and say, wait a second, that's two legs. And I would say that's a fair argument, but I still like it. I still think it meets my risk benefit ratio and I still think it helps me to, to improve power. The other thing I really like about cleans, I love them catching the bar is really great for a collision sport like lacrosse. Cause I always said like one of the things I thought about and I never really, I guess I didn't think about, we didn't have a lot of concussions when I was at Boston university with hockey. Cause the last say 15 years of my collegiate career was hockey strength and conditioning. We didn't have a lot of concussions. We didn't have a lot of shoulder injuries. And when people started to ask me why I said, I think it's Olympic lifting. I think it's, you know, when you get a kid who can catch 300 pounds, you know, on his shoulders, he's pretty collision tolerant. He's gotten very used to managing really high loads and absorbing them. And so when that guy hits another player, hits the boards or whatever it is, he's been exposed to really high loads. So I think there's a, I think there's a lot of sort of hidden benefit in Olympic lifting that we may not necessarily have thought about previously. One of the things that you always talk about in your program, and you use this app called Train Heroic, which is pretty awesome. Um, but you talk about, you know, constantly the the risk reward ratio, or however you put it. Um, and it, and you also reference the, the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, do no harm. I mean, that's that's because um, the old tired quote, right? The, the greatest ability is availability. So when you're thinking, you know, if we're, if you're coaching the team, what you want to know on Friday is who's available to play. And what you're hoping is that all of my best players are available to play. If those players are getting injured in the weight room, doing the program that I put together and I'm limiting, you know, the availability of those players by not fully analyzing the risk benefit ratio of certain exercises, then I do everybody a disservice. I violate that do no harm oath. If I get people hurt in the weight room. So I've started to eliminate things that I think are, you know, if I say this has a higher risk benefit ratio, uh, back squats, you know, cleans from the floor, things like that. I eliminate those things and I replace them with things that I think have a lower uh, risk benefit ratio so that I can look at this and say, hey, I think this is a pretty low risk exercise 
with a really, uh, with the same benefit or maybe even higher. That's what we found with the unilateral lower body stuff. I felt like the benefit was higher, but the risk was lower. That's if you start looking at that ratio, I mean, that's a really good return on investment for us in terms of time because I'm doing an exercise that I think is making somebody better faster and has a lower incidence of them getting hurt. And I think as a strength and conditioning coach, if you don't start with that do no harm idea, you're, um, you're making a really big mistake. And it's interesting because if you look at pro sports, if you do that in pro sports, you get fired. If you do it in college sports, you don't, which is very interesting. You can have a really shitty college strength program where a lot of kids are, you know, not succeeding in the weight room or whatever, having shoulder pain or back pain or whatever it is. And no one gets too worked up about it. I think because the numbers are so large, but on a pro team where you've, you know, again, NFL team, you've got an active roster of 50 guys. If suddenly in, 10% of those guys get hurt in the weight room you're and done. you lose five guys, you're out of a job. And you, you know, trickle that down to basketball or hockey, you know, where the rosters are even smaller. Now you're talking about rosters that are under 30 or rosters that are under 20. And I always give the analogy, like if you look at, um, look at the Lakers playing now, and I'm not, I won't say I'm the biggest LeBron fan in the world, but if I give you the choice of LeBron playing or not playing, you want LeBron playing. <laughs> no doubt. Right. And if I said, well, but, you know, but, you know, I want him to lift. I, you know, I want him to do this. I want him to do that. You're like, I, I want him playing. I want him healthy and playing. I don't care about any of the other stuff. You can take all the other stuff and stick it in your ear. I want him playing. And, and what you realize is that's the way it is at the highest level. And you should get used to it being that way. And you should look at it. The thing I always say, because like for me now, like I'm dealing with your daughter, my son, my daughter, other people's kids. I need to be responsible. If, if those kids get hurt because I told them to do something, let's just say like some stupid CrossFit thing, do as many of these as you can, you know, do as many, you know, deadlifts as you can in a minute or something and they get hurt. That's my fault. I'm the one that prescribed that. I'm the one that broke my do no harm oath. Yeah. And I think that's a really big deal. It is. Don't do anything today. That's going to screw up your workout for tomorrow. Right. And that's, that's, you know, Tony Hall says that all the time. Don't let today's workout ruin tomorrow's. And I've become a believer in that more and more as I've gotten older. And particularly as I'm dealing with these like overscheduled kids who are playing two sports and tournaments. And, you know, one of the things we have to talk about with sprinting, we go back to the sprinting idea. I tell the kids all the time, if you soar, don't sprint. If you don't feel perfect, don't sprint. Because we can always sprint, you know, if it's Tuesday, we can always sprint Thursday. Yep. But we can't undo your hamstring pull Wednesday that you got today, you know, we're going to have to deal with that for a couple of weeks down the road. And so we're really adamant about that stuff. And, you know, we, I wrote an article one time called, does it hurt? And the, the simplistic gist of the article is I'm going to ask you to do an exercise and I'm going to say, does it hurt? And you can only say yes or no. <laughs> and so, you know, cause it's amazing how often you'll say, so was that, does that bother your shoulder? And well, not really. I'm like, well, not really. Yes. Or, you know, after I warm up and I'm like, no, after you, I warm up is yes. Or I ice when I'm done. That's also yes. Like what I want is no. I want you to look at me and say, I can, I, accept you. I want you to do that exercise. And I want you to tell me that on a scale of one to 10, it is zero. No discomfort. If that's the case, we go forward with that exercise. If it's uncomfortable in any way, we find an alternative to that. And it, that has worked. I mean, miracles for us in terms of keeping our athletes so smart. healthy playing because that's you know from a, like i said from a coaching perspective that's what you want totally 
pound so, for pound, if that's what you want. <laughs> trying to find this is very hard. So um, you could go to lacrosseathlete.com and you could learn about Mike's um, program on Train Heroic. He actually has instructors and a staff of guys that are phenomenal that will that will actually coach you through the message boards, look at your film, give you feedback on your cleans. You know, that's exactly what my daughter does with Mike. Unfortunately, I don't think you're going to get Mike, but they have an incredible staff that will, that will give you feedback. If you go into their message board with any questions, with any videos that you send them, um, you can also do things in person. Um, there are real advantages to being in person. Mike will say, man, if I could just, this summer he got a chance to work with Lucy in person. And uh, it was awesome because he was like, man, in like five minutes, I taught her a few things on her cleans. Um, but at the same time, we don't have a Mike Boyle in, in, in Highlands Ranch, Colorado that I know. And we also love the fact that, that she can jump on train heroic. She can do her workout at home on her time. These kids, as we know, they are so busy with their sports and their studies and, and you know, tutoring and SATs and all this stuff that it's nice to be able to just bang it out on your own time. It's also great to have great coaching. So how do people sort of figure out this dilemma as to whether they should jump into your online program at lacrosseathlete.com or whether they should find a, a great local gym to go to? Well, I think they have to do some legwork. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past a lot is that the first part of the legwork is going to wherever it is you think you want to train and watching. You know, just going in and looking and seeing, you know, what does the place look like? What's the feel that I get from this place? And um, I had this exact thing happen. One of my now three-time Olympian, one of my favorite athletes, 12-year-old daughter, struggling to find a place in Minnesota area to train, sends her daughter to a place and, and then sends me a video that is like, oh my God, I can't believe they've got her doing this. And the girl's been limping around with a sore knee now for three weeks you know, from her, like, two workouts at this place. And so you, you got to go. And if you don't know, that's going to be a problem. If you don't know what you're looking for, if you're not sort of an educated consumer, it's going to be difficult. But there's some, you know, what people might call tells. There's the telltale things when you go in there and you look. And I always said, if, if the people that are running it don't look like athletes, they probably aren't. If you go in there and it's sort of, you know, I always say Marty Musclehead's in there in a tight shirt and you know he doesn't look like he could get out of the way of a moving train you think okay that's probably not the person i want designing a program for my kid and going in there and just watching and saying what does it look like are there people actually coaching are the coaches coaching are the kids lifting in a way that i look at that because one thing that even the uninformed person i always talk about um this is indelicate but the shit test i always say if in my backyard i got three dogs and i look down i know what doesn't take me you know, I don't have to do any analysis. I don't have to bring anything to the lab to figure it out. I'm like, that shit, I'm going to pick it up, put it in the bag. The weight room is kind of the same way. You can walk in there and look and think, hey, I like the way that looks. That kid does that well. That's not, you don't need to know a lot about strength training or about weightlifting or whatever to be able to look and think, well, that looks good. That looks safe. That looks like the kid has the right amount of weight on it. Or you might look at it and get the feeling of like that, like, oh my God, that, that's not good. That didn't look good. If you get that, oh my God feeling, you're in the wrong place. And it's not always, you know, we've talked about this, it's not about resumes, it's not about websites, and everybody's resume is the same. Everybody's going to say they've worked with all these great athletes and pro athletes and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is 
you've got to go in there really and look and see how does it look? How does this place feel? What is the atmosphere like? Is this the kind of place I feel my son or my daughter would be safe and cared for and well coached? Because that's what you really want. And that's not about sort of testosterone and macho and yelling and screaming and heavy metal music and people throwing weights on the ground and all that shit, excuse my language. It's about going in and thinking, wow, there's some bright, thoughtful people here who are teaching the kids how to lift. And the, the sad part is you said, you won't find enough of those places there. They're fewer and further between. And that's why the app-based stuff that we're doing works because you'll get that. And you do get access to guys like Ken and Steve who are really, really good and who are you know kind of partnered with me in this app-based program. And they're gonna look at your videos and answer your questions. So it's, it's not an easy thing to do because we talked about this and we probably should have talked about it in the open, but with kids, you know, there are kids, there's three types of training or three types of kids, kids that are doing nothing, kids that are doing the wrong thing and kids that are doing the right thing. You want your kid to be doing the right thing. Doing the wrong thing is going to be probably just as bad as doing nothing. Because if you end up with a kid who's got a bad back because somebody's loading them up with, you know, back squats or so whatever it is and letting them do things with crappy technique and suddenly they're coming home and saying, oh, my back hurts, my knee hurts, my shoulder hurts. That's going to be a problem. So you've got to be really super careful. And if you've got, you got to be really careful, particularly with boys in that, like uh, the, you know, the 13 to 15 growth spurt kind of age, because they're going to have all those pains anyway. <laughs> and you got to be able to figure out are those pains just because they are growing or are those pains because something's going wrong from a training perspective. And so I would just say this, and this has not a lot to do with the podcast, but as a parent, you have to respect those concerns with your kids. Like you can't always soft. You should go to practice, you know, that kind of thing. You've got to be able to look at that and think, generally speaking, kids 13, 14, 15, they want to go to practice and they're not making stuff up about having a sore knee or having a sore shoulder, or having a sore elbow. And what I've always done, the reverse psychology works great. Hey, you don't have to go. You, I won't make you go again until you feel better. It's amazing how often they're like, no, no, it's actually not that bad. I, I feel pretty good. I can go. <laughs> right. But if you, if you don't, if you ignore it and it's real and you make the kid go and suddenly, oh, you buy him a knee brace or, something like that. Or, you know, you say, oh, we'll get new cleats. And then you end up with a kid down the road. And I see it all the time where kids are, you know, they've developed some really significant overuse things. You know, they develop patellar tendonitis, they develop Achilles tendonitis, you know, and they'll call it a Seaver's disease in a kid, but it's still Achilles tendonitis. Kids shouldn't have those things. You know, kids shouldn't pull hamstrings. They shouldn't have pulled hip flexors. They shouldn't have low back pain. Those are abnormal. You and I should have that stuff, but you know, a, a 13 and 14 year old kid should not boy or girl. And so you've got to be respectful of those things. And you've got to make sure that you find a, like a non muscle head gym that's going to, to really teach your kid. And that may be, you may go there and think, Oh, they're not sweating. Nobody threw up, you know, they're not screaming and yelling. I'd look at all that and say, good. <laughs> you know, if your kid comes out and says, Oh, I think it was too easy. That's probably a good sign. Not a bad sign. Because yeah, that people are afraid. They're like, well, you know, I paid all this money and like, you know, he's, he's, he or she's not even sore. Yeah, exactly. I would look at that. They keep paying sore. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. They should be, they shouldn't be sore really. I mean, occasionally, but you know, if you get kids that can't move, like if your kids like, Oh my God, I can't get up and down. I can't get out of a chair. You know, I can't, the person who's training them doesn't know. I always said any idiot can make you sore. And most do. Um, so, um, and, you know, I use the same analogy. Say if soreness mattered, 
um, my program would be taking you out back and beating you with a baseball bat because you'd be really sore. <laughs> but if you paid me for that, you'd be pretty stupid. Yeah. And so, I mean, but that's some people's version of strength and conditioning is just taking kids in and pummeling them and, you know, running them to the point that they throw up or they're dizzy or whatever it is. It's, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just pretty much push something, pull something, do something for your legs, do something for your core, make sure you're doing it right. You know, and that's why I love, I mean, listen, I, I think there's nothing better than to be able to live within a few miles of Mike Boyle where you can drive over and go to his gym. But I can tell you that we've been so happy. My, uh, my son and my daughter are both in your program and they send videos to you guys. They get feedback. They use the trainer row app. They can take it wherever they want. Uh, they can be consistent. It's incredibly efficient for time. And for everybody, I am, if you sign up for this, I am throwing in a JM3 Academy into the mix. So you'll actually get our attack midfield, our defense, or our girls academy if you sign up for Mike Boyle's program through lacrosseathlete.com. And it's, it's, it's a home run. And by the way, Mike, if somebody has a question and they're like, hey, what do you think of this gym? You know, can they email you? Yeah, I always, my email is everywhere. I always say mboyle1959, sadly, at aol.com. Uh, you know, I always say AOL, AOL is code for old. There's only old people have AOL email addresses. But uh, in 1959, you can probably figure out what that is. Anybody, it doesn't have to be a detective. But, um, yeah, send an email and say, I mean, yeah. I, I, cause I'll answer honestly. I might say, hey, don't tell the guy I said that. But if someone said, you know, what about him? I'm thinking about sending him to blank. I might say I have no idea. I might say don't go. I might say let me go look at their website and get a try to get a handle on where they are. Because it's funny, when I was working for the Red Sox, that was one of the things we had to do. We had to figure out, we had to vet gyms yeah. to find places for guys to train. It's really no different. You're trying to vet a gym. Off-season, they would go home. Yeah. Gym. yeah, when they're home. Because, you know, they're going to go somewhere. Yeah. And I used to always tell, you know, and this was before I wish now we'd had, if we'd figured out the train heroic thing, then it, life would have been really easy. Because really, and people say, oh, they're trying to pump the app. But if you got on, if you downloaded the Train Heroic app and looked at our program, it's unbelievable how simple it is to follow. I mean, it's, I, we were doing a webinar for a hockey group last night, and I said, it is like playing a game of follow the leader. All you really have to do is click and watch Steve or Ken do the exercise and then do what they did. And, and film yourself like Lucy and Colin do all the time. Yeah, and send it in. Send it in. Or just put a question in the chat, like, what's this? Yeah. And all that stuff pops up and gets answered in a lot of times gets answered in real time, which is a, it's a, the train heroic guys have done a really good job. The, you know, the company that is behind this has, I mean, there's a lot of brain power behind this app besides ours. Yeah. And there's, it's really, it is a really, really good product that um, is actually a bargain when you start looking at, you know, the ability you know, for most people, it could be like you, you know, you got a, you got a nice little home gym, you download the app, you get on there and bang, you're, you know, you're, you're doing it. You're, you're in business and you're working out the difference. So it does take the kid. There's a little motivation aspect from yep. the kid. They got to, they got to go back to that slight edge idea. They got to show up. They got to turn the app on and, you know, whatever, go in the basement and, and get started in the process. Yeah, no doubt. You, you, you know, the, the, the kid that needs to get pushed probably needs to go to a gym. Um, but, um, but there's a lot of kids that, that are, they're willing to work their butt off 
And uh, I see them all the time. These kids are hard workers and they can get it done on their own. And if they're doing it the right way, like you said, you can do well, it. Like Lucy. I mean, I, I love Lucy. I'm, I'm fascinated by Lucy because I'm like, I'm amazed that this girl can do what she does as a, you know, whatever, 17 year old on her own. It's, uh, and in some ways I, I, I kind of like that part, although I have to, it's bad for business <laughs> for me, but I do, I like the fact that, that there is an individual motivation aspect to this, that, that does put some onus on the kid. Whereas, you know, the kids that we're getting, it's kind of a, you know, captive sort of situation. You know, somebody gets them there and then we get the responsibility. It's like, okay, we got them here, you make them better. And that's not necessarily as easy if they don't really want to get better. Yeah, totally. Well, Mike, this is awesome stuff. Everybody, um, I hope you enjoyed this. I mean, at the end of the day, you're, we all need our kids to be more athletic, whether we're coaches or parents or whether we're athletes. We need to get better. We need to get stronger. We need to get faster. Um, Mike's model works. Um, and uh, if you go to lacrosseathlete.com or uh, what, what's your email again, Mike? mboyle1959 at aol.com. And you can get information on all this stuff. Check it out. Uh, it's a game changer. Um, if you have questions, reach out. And Mike, thanks so much for coming on, man. Jamie, thank you for having me as usual. I, like I said, I could, we could do this all day. All right. We'll see you next time. All right.